0: Thomas Tessier's World of Hurt, I'm Chris L. McKenna. Today's story weaves fact with fiction, and as is so often the case, the most unbelievable parts are the ones that are true. The long dead composers you'll hear of, including the enigmatic Peter Warlock, are all too real. This story first appeared in Thomas Tessier's first collection, Ghost Music and Other Tales in 2000, winner of the International Horror Guild Award. Stay tuned at the end for the original author's notes. Enjoy Ghost Music. I never wanted to tell this story. But there's no longer any point in sitting on it. I'd like to think that it might serve as a very small footnote to a very small entry in music history, but that seems rather unlikely. Does anyone still remember Eric Springer? Do you know who Mandy Robbins was? (sighs) A couple of months ago I was skimming the Times and I saw the brief news item about the train wreck south of Cairo. The usual disaster in an underdeveloped country, dozens of people dead. I took it in and quickly passed on without a second thought. But a short while later, I received a telephone call from an old friend in London. Did I know that Mandy Robbins was on that train and had died in that crash? I was stunned. No one had heard from her in ages. Though at various times, rumor had it that she was living in a dark apartment in Buenos Aires or a tiny cabin in a remote Norwegian fishing village, or a villa on a resort island in the Adriatic, but no one really knew. And after a while, those stories dried up. We all more or less forgot about her. Or we filed her away, among our less happy memories, with Eric. Mandy Robbins was en route to Luxor when the train accident occurred. Twenty years later, she was still running. I live in Dutchess County now, about 70 miles north of Manhattan. I edit and write most of Tonal Atonal*, a monthly newsletter. My articles and reviews also appear in several other publications that cover 20th century music, and my monographs on Hartman and Ludislavski have sold well to libraries throughout the world. I'm working on Arvo Part now, and I teach a course at the local high school. It all adds up to a reasonable income, and I suppose I'm happy enough in my A-frame. I own about 5,000 CDs, records and tapes, as many books, a superb stereo system, and I occasionally have an affair with a divorcee.
1: You know,
0: it is a life. But in 1976, I was living in London, and I sincerely believed in the importance of great art, literary and musical. There were classics, old and modern, and they truly mattered, perhaps more than anything else. A new composition by Beria was greeted as an event of quasi-religious significance. Art was, in some ways, more real than life itself, I thought. Back then, I hadn't yet given up on myself. Though I was already beginning to cobble together a sideline career as a commentator rather than a composer. Eric Springer was an old friend with more talent and better luck. I was thrilled when he wrote to say he'd be coming to stay in London for several months. We hadn't seen each other in a while though we kept in touch with postcards. Eric's variations for piano and oboe had been heard on a late-night FM station in California by a young producer who decided to use it in his next film. No Hopers was a cult success, and the soundtrack sold quite well. Eric had already earned a measure of critical praise as a promising young composer, but now he had the added pleasure of an unexpected payoff from the world of popular entertainment. He was coming to London to write a quartet, commissioned by the Claymore Foundation, and to be with the new love of his life. Mandy Robbins was then 23, attempting a comeback in a career that had never quite happened. She'd been a bright young prospect as a violinist at the age of 14, but the assorted stresses of high expectations, touring, and family problems had combined to derail her. At 18, she packed it all in and took a couple years off to put her life in order. Then she began, slowly and carefully, to make her way back as a performer. By the spring of 1976, she had done well enough to have a new agent and a challenging but very sweet job. She would perform the Berg Violin Concerto at the upcoming proms. A friend and wealthy patron offered her the free use of his house in London, and she intended to spend four months mastering the technically difficult and emotionally taxing composition. It would be her breakthrough concert. There was talk of a live recording and a contract for studio albums later. Mandy would also be the star soloist at the debut of Eric's quartet sometime in the future. Eric and Mandy. Mandy and Eric. When I met them at Heathrow in late April of 1976, the air seemed charged with the excitement of their romance and the dazzling music they were setting out to create. It all seemed to be coming together for them both. And I was swept up in it as well, happily so. I felt privileged to be the friend at hand. They quickly settled into their new home, a Georgian brick house in one of the narrow streets behind Edwards Square, on the edge of Kensington and Earls Court. The owner had spent a small fortune renovating and redecorating, and it featured a music room with a bosendorfer grand on which Eric could help Mandy rehearse, using a piano reduction of Berg's orchestral score. There was a separate den with a spinet in the converted basement where Eric could work on his own composition. It was ideal for them. And by happy coincidence, I was living in a tiny flat behind the Olympia a short walk from their place. We spent a lot of time together in the early going, as I showed them around London, took them on pub outings, introduced them to Indian food, and helped them find some of the less obvious sights they were interested in seeing, like the modest house in Chelsea where Peter Warlock came to his sad and lonely end, and the rather dreary old pile that Edward Elgar had lived in near the North End Road. Eric and Mandy both took to London at once, They loved going for long walks around the city, and they soon began talking about the possibility of finding an affordable place of their own after the proms and staying on indefinitely. I liked Mandy from day one. She was obviously intelligent, especially about music, though she wasn't nearly the compulsive talker on the subject that Eric and I were. She was petite and still had a look of girlish prettiness about her, but you would occasionally catch a brief glimpse of adult sadness in her eyes when something was said that brought an unhappy memory to mind. I knew that she had struggled to escape a possessive father who'd attempted to control every aspect of her life and career. She was eventually successful in breaking away, but she still carried the emotional scars. Most of the time, however, Mandy was buoyant and energetic, fun to talk to and to be with, and it was very clear to me that she cared deeply for Eric and that he felt the same about her. He had found her at exactly the right time in his life. Eric was fast approaching 30, He'd been something of a playboy for rather too long and was in danger of being written off as an underachiever. He had never produced as much new music as some people felt he should. Now he was apparently making real progress at last. The movie success and the Claymore Commission both helped enormously, but Mandy was the vital factor. She gave him love and a sense of stability for what was perhaps the first time in his life. The two of them shared an ambitious vision. They wanted both greatness for each other in music and to have a great love affair, together forever. Well, why not? At that age, we all want everything. And we can't imagine why we shouldn't get it. I was beginning to sense my own limitations, but I still believed in Eric. And the first time I saw Mandy strike the violin strings with the edge of her hand in the famous warm-up of the Berg piece, a kind of firm but very delicate chopping motion, an incredibly difficult thing to do properly, I believed in her as well. Eric and I were sitting on the small patio outside the Lord Edward one balmy evening a few weeks into their stay when I got the first indication that there were problems. Eric seemed to be distracted and had little to say. Mandy, who was not one for the drink anyway, had stayed home to take a hot bath. Lately, she was being bothered by aching muscles in her shoulders and legs. Eric said she was rehearsing too much, and there may have been a minor disagreement between them. I was sympathetic but I sensed there was something else on Eric's mind. He was a tall, sturdy guy, but that evening he sat hunched over his pint in a way that suggested defeat. He looked like one of the dazed old-timers at Wards. He had even gone for three or four days without shaving, which was not his style. We chatted fitfully for a while, and then I asked about his quartet. If there was trouble, it had to be with the music. Want to read some of it? Of course. I'd love to. I'd been looking forward to the moment when Eric would show me some of his new work. He reached down and unzipped the slim briefcase he always carried with him, fished out a few sheets of music paper and handed them to me. He had a smile on his face, but there was something sour in it. The first page bore the hand-printed title Quartet, and the dedication for Mandy. My eyes scanned down the page and across the staves. I was amazed. It was pre-serial. In fact, it seemed to be pre-romantic, an altogether astonishing turn back to the past for a composer like Eric. Another shock. The quartet opened with a bass dance. It was incredible. Nothing in his previous work had ever looked in this direction. But I was going too fast to hear it in my mind. I started over again. Caught it. And a tremendous sense of confusion washed through me. You're quoting Warlock, I said without looking up. How am I? This is his capriole suite. I know. It continued for the next five pages, what was then the only fairly well known piece of music composed by Peter Warlock, circa 1926. The restless flurry of notes ended abruptly in the middle of the seventh page. With a large X scrawled across it and the words, shit, shit, shit. I don't understand. Neither do I. Surely you don't mean to quote at this length. I you right at the very beginning of your own work. No, of course not. Well, I'll tell you what's really
2: kind of scary about it. I've been working on that for weeks. Ever since we got here. But it was only the other day when I realised what it was. Until then, I, I, I had no idea. <sighs> I honestly thought it was all mine.
0: I let that pass for the moment. Because I couldn't think of a thing to say. All composers and writers are influenced by those who came before. As they mature, they outgrow their influences and find their own voices. Or else they come to a dead end. But this was not a case of excessive influence. Eric had Peter Warlock's music note for note, as far as I could tell. Well, that's not scary. (laughs) Embarrassing, maybe. (laughs) Yes, it's embarrassing. What was scary, I thought, but did not say, was that this was all he had to show for a month of steady work. I told him not to listen to any other music, except the berg that Mandy was practicing, and to begin again on his quartet. We both knew that the history of great works of art is littered with false starts. Or, as Edward Albee said, you nose around and nose around like a dog until you find the right place to squat. Eric was clearly relieved when I brushed aside the incident. Privately, I was disturbed. And I knew he was, too. Why else would he even show me those self-damning pages? And how can it be explained? Eric had been living quietly with Mandy for all that month, up to nothing worse than a few pints at night after a long day's work. And who could be grudging that? I understood influence. But how anybody could virtually transcribe the work of another person and not know that they were doing it is beyond me. Yet I had no doubt Eric was being truthful. (sighs) <sighs> a few days later on the weekend, the three of us went up to Portobello Road and poked around among the flea market stalls. I didn't find anything. But Eric bought Mandy a lovely silver charm of a cat, sleek and vaguely Egyptian, with a fleck of amber and set as an eye. It came on a thin chain, and Mandy immediately put it around her neck. Mandy was very fond of cats, and if she and Eric stayed on in London, they intended to get one. We had a pleasant pub lunch on Church Street, and while Eric was at the bar buying another round, I asked Mandy how her work on the Bear Concerto was coming along.
1: The music's fine, and I love it, but it's so demanding, and my body is behind schedule.
0: She sipped her spritzer, as usual, the only one she would have.
1: My legs get very sore after I've been standing for a while, and I seem to get tired very quickly.
0: I nodded. For the concert soloist? Physical training and stamina are every bit as important as they are for the athlete.
1: But I'm following an excellent program of exercises, so hopefully I'll be in peak condition by the end of August.
0: Good. I'm sure you'll be fine. And how's Eric's work? He seems cheerful enough, but he hasn't said very much to me about it. Mandy's face brightened.
1: I heard some of it last night, and it was gorgeous. And I'm not just saying that. It really was the most beautiful music I've heard in ages.
0: What was? Eric was back at the table with two fresh pints.
1: The theme you were working on last night.
2: Oh, yes. She's right, too. It's the
0: best work I've ever done. Great. (laughs) I can't wait to hear it. By the time we got back to their place, Eric and I were quite jolly with beer, and Mandy was tolerantly amused. I insisted that they both give me at least a brief preview of their work before I tottered off home. Mandy took out her violin while Eric poured a very ordinary scotch for the two of us. Some people don't like Albin Berg. They just don't get that whole second Viennese school. But I find his music heartbreaking. Especially the violin concerto. His own farewell to life. Mandy nearly had me in tears within a few moments. She only played the final part, the adagio, but that was enough. She sat down with a wince and a groan and put her feet up on a hassock. I told her how good she was, several times. Then Mandy and I badgered Eric to play a bit of his new music. It didn't take much. He seemed genuinely eager and he stepped briskly to the piano.
2: Remember, it's just an idea I'm fooling around
0: with and you must hear it in strings. He began to play, taking up his theme and exploring it, much as a jazz musician will improvise around a song line. It was far from developed, still spare and skeletal, but Mandy was right. It was a gorgeous idea that just hinted teasingly at rich colors and deeply moving harmonies. Eric played for about ten minutes. Mandy and I clapped, and he grinned as he flopped down in the armchair and reached for his whiskey glass. I came up with some encouraging words and somehow managed to hide the huge distress I felt. I still wasn't quite sure what he'd been playing, but I knew that I knew it. And it wasn't Eric Springer's music. My knowledge of 20th century music is far from encyclopedic. I'm patchy on the Americans, Scandinavians, Russians, the Spanish, and much of the rest of the world. But in 1976, I was really into British composers, particularly the more obscure ones lost in the enormous shadows cast by Vaughan Williams in Britain. Since then, I've concentrated on the Germans and East Europeans. The next day, I could still hear the theme in my head, and I began to work out what it might be. By late that afternoon, I at least had a pretty good idea of who the composer was. I dreaded speaking to Eric about it, but there was no choice in the matter. I rang and asked if I could stop by, knowing that was the time of day he usually finished working. When I got there, Mandy was out, and Eric was ready to go for a walk and a pre-dinner pint. That was fine with me, but first I had him play the theme for me again. He had developed it quite a bit in only 24 hours, but hearing it again merely served to confirm my suspicions. While we were out walking, I spoke in a general way about the music and how it was so different from his previous work. We went to the Britannia in Warwick Road. Now, I said after we'd taken our first sip of Young's, I have to tell you what I don't like about it. Okay, fire ahead. It's by Ernest Moran. Eric stared at me, as if he couldn't believe what I'd just said. I'm pretty sure it's from his string trio composed in 1931. That or his violin sonata of 1923. Anyhow, I'm certain it's E.J. Moran.
2: I've never even heard of him. And I'm damn sure I've never heard a note of his music.
0: I, I believe you, but... You must be wrong. You've got to be. Check it out yourself. And do it before you play or show that music to anyone else because you'll be embarrassed. And you might even find yourself with legal problems. Jesus!
2: What's going on here? I don't know. Who the hell is Ernest Moran?
0: Uh, A minor English composer. Born 1894, died 1950. A few of his works are of real, lasting quality. He's the kind of composer I love to find, overlooked by most people. At that point I hesitated, but I had to go on. When I first got into Peter Warlock seriously, a couple of years ago, I came across Moran. He and Morlock were very close friends. Eric stared at me. I did not tell him the saddest details of all about Ernest Moran. We never got around to them. Or maybe I just didn't want to risk making matters worse for Eric. That in 1950, at the age of 55, on one of his many trips to Ireland, Moran was found dead in a river, apparently the victim of a heart attack. Or that in 1926, Moran had a colossal failure. He could not complete work on a symphony that had been commissioned by the Holly Orchestra. Or that his friendship with the remarkable, but very strange, Peter Warlock had nearly destroyed Moran's life while he was still a young man. In fact, there were people who knew them both who believed that the best thing that ever happened to Moran was the mysterious death of Warlock himself in 1930. I didn't see Eric again until the end of the following week. I knew he would need some time to sort himself out, and I had to put my own thoughts in order, or at least try. I used the time to do a bit of research on Peter Warlock, but that didn't help me understand what was happening with Eric. The only explanation I could come up with was that he had to be going through some kind of mental breakdown, that he did know the Moran piece, as he'd admitted he knew the Warlock, and he'd begun to recompose them both in the mistaken belief that they were his own, as a result of some deep confusion or psychological crisis. But aside from the music itself, I had seen nothing in his habits or behavior that would support such a theory. He appeared to be fine in all other respects, and Mandy had given no hint of troubles with him. All I could think was that something bizarre happened whenever he sat down at the piano to compose. Perhaps the pressure to justify such an important commission became too great to handle, and his mind lurched off on its own, dredging up music he knew but dissociating it from its source. Every Friday I spent a couple of hours at Bush House editing and polishing the English translation of emigre texts broadcast on the BBC World Service. It was a handy job, and it eventually led to my interest in these so-called dissident composers from the Eastern Bloc, like Gorecki. Eric phoned, knowing I'd probably be there. He asked me to meet him at a place called the New Ambassador Club, which turned out to be a humble drinking den up one flight of stairs on Orange Street. I have no idea how Eric found such a place, or became a member, but he was at the last table at the back. I almost didn't recognize him. The four-day stubble was now about two weeks old and had been shaved down to form an emerging goatee and a disconnected mustache. That was startling enough in itself, because Eric had never sported facial hair. But he also looked thin and gaunt. His skin was grey and his eyes were tired. Obviously, he wasn't eating or sleeping properly. All right.
2: I've... I've got a problem. I know I heard Warlock last summer at the Hart School. Maybe it was the music or his odd name, but I was curious to see the place that he died shortly after we got here. Yes. And maybe... Maybe Moran was on the same concert program. I don't remember it, but maybe he was. That has to be what happened. I mean, how else could I pick up their music?
0: I'm inclined to agree.
2: But that kind of music, it doesn't even interest me. It never has. Tone colour and lyrical harmonies in the old modes. It's it's old language.
0: I know. That's never been your style.
2: So why... Why is this all I can do now? When I sit down to write or fall around on the piano, the only thing that comes out is that kind of music. And then I realise what it is, and I have to throw it out and start all over again.
0: Do some exercises in dissonance. I've
2: tried. But whenever I consciously try to set off in a particular direction, I immediately come to a dead end. I get nowhere. I've been here going on two months now. And I've written nothing of my own. Not
0: one note. It sounds like writer's block. I guess the only thing you can do is to keep working until you work your way out of it. And you will, sooner or later. Eric looked as if he didn't entirely believe me. In fact, I wasn't sure I believed it myself. Eric had another theory. The success of the movie soundtrack had somehow leached away at his self-confidence. He was afraid of not being taken seriously or being dismissed as a popular hack. His quartet would be an easy target for that charge from people who resented his windfall, and fear of this was now blocking him creatively. There may have been a small grain of truth in what he said, but there was also a large blob of paranoia. The music community didn't follow him that closely. Eric was just one of many young composers with true potential, but a tenuous hold on the art. And he was not yet the focus of widespread interest. That's a stretch. The movie money started to come in a couple of years ago. It's in the past now, so you can forget about it. And there's no point in worrying about what the critics will say about the quartet until you finish it. You have a massive case of self-consciousness, that's all. And the way out of it is to keep working breakthrough. Eric thought about that for a few moments, and then he said, Tell me more about Peter Warlock. This is not really about Peter Warlock. This is all about you and your music. I know. Still. Well, he was a brilliant scholar and a very good composer. Some of his songs are among the best in English music. He was born in 1894, and his real name was Philip Heseltine. But his music criticism offended so many people that, when he came to the point of publishing his own music, he decided it would be best to use a pseudonym. No one really... Look at that. He
2: was so worried
0: about what other people would say that he took another name. Yes, but it didn't work. People soon knew that Warlock was Heseltine. By the way, nobody seems to know how he came up with that name. But he had a strong interest in the occult, and there were stories about experiments with Satanism and drugs. Warlock certainly had his darker side. Some people remember him as being distinctly sinister, and he was prone to extended drinking binges. E.J. Moran was so much under Warlock's influence that he shared a place with him for a while, but eventually he realized that the lifestyle was destroying his work and ruining his health, and he had to get out. But there were other people who said that Peter Warlock was essentially warm and caring, a very good friend, and that his occasional outbursts of wildness were merely a release from the intense pressures of work. When it came to his music, it seems he was a hard taskmaster on himself. Why did he kill himself? We can't be sure he did. The gas valve was very loose, and it may be that he stretched out for a nap and a leak did him in. On the other hand, his personal life was troubled. His finances were always in bad shape. He suffered bouts of depression, and he thought he was a failure. His music bucked the trends of the day. This was 1930, and he thought he was going nowhere. He did mention suicide to a few friends, and later they regretted not taking him seriously. The inquest returned an open verdict, but that was probably an act of kindness. From all the evidence, it certainly does look like suicide. He was, what, 36? Right. And it's only just in the last few years that people started listening to him again and liking what they hear. He had an intense, charismatic personality, there's no doubt about that. Most people who met him either hated and feared him, or else they simply adored him. I think there's a weird story behind
2: every composer who ever lived. Warlock sounds as peculiar as they come, but what he has to do with me, I have no idea.
0: I'll tell you one more thing about him. What? He was tall like you. Some people described him as Mephistophelian in appearance. I've seen a photograph of him, and they're right about that. He had a mustache and goatee, just like the ones you've sprouted. Events got in the way, and I wasn't able to see Eric or Mandy for another two weeks after that. I did speak to him on the phone once, and he assured me that he was at last beginning to make a little headway with his work. He sounded distracted, and I took that to mean that his mind was entirely on his music. The next time I called, I got Mandy. Eric was out. He went out every day, late in the afternoon, and came back late at night, usually in a boozy state. When he worked, the music she heard was not music at all, just doodling at the keyboard. She was worried. A few days later, she rang and asked if I knew where he might be. She was in a state and I got the impression that he had not been home at all the night before. Or if he had, he'd gone out again. It was early evening, and she couldn't stand waiting there alone, not knowing where he was or when he might return. I tried to calm her down and promised to look for him. I didn't think there were very many places Eric might wander to, since he still wasn't terribly familiar with London. I tried his little drinking club in Orange Street first. He wasn't there, but the large woman behind the bar told me that he had left about an hour ago with a lady friend. I tried the French and a couple of other pubs in Soho before I found him at the Colony Club. It was even drabber than the new ambassador, but it had a better clientele. Literary publishers, freelancers, the art crowd arrayed lovingly around Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud. Eric was off in a corner at a typically rickety table with a woman dressed entirely in black. She had a long, horsey face and long, straight blonde hair. Her name was Gillian or Francesca. They were both moderately pissed, and they each thought the other was wonderfully amusing. I, most amusing of all. It took me one round of drinks and not much effort to detach Eric, and I got him into a taxi. He was humming like a tractor, but unfortunately, it was nothing more exalted than the refrain from Lola What the hell are you doing?
2: I, I'm turning into Peter Warlock. <laughs>
0: No, you're not. You're just acting like a big child. Dodging your work, leaving Mandy alone for hours on end. It's stupid, Eric. It's stupid, and it's uncalled for.
2: Maybe he's taking me over.
0: (laughs) Why would he bother? Peter Warlock's resting happily in his grave. His reputation is secure. It turned out to be a vicious remark, and I was immediately sorry I made it. We were miserably silent the rest of the way. I went in with him to say hello to Mandy. Eric smiled and gave her a kiss on the cheek, and then sloped off down to his study in the basement. Mandy was in tears, obviously not in the mood for much talk. The front room was a bit messy, and I noticed that she was still moving very stiffly. Where was he? Having a drink at a club with Francis Bacon. It's amazing how you can find the gloss when you need it. Wait till tomorrow to have a chat with him. I'll do the same in a day or two. He's just having a hard time getting going with the quartet. He'll snap out of it soon enough. You'll see. I hope
1: so. George, thank you so much.
0: (sighs) Not at all. How are you feeling, love?
1: Otherwise, still sore and achy. But I'll be okay. As soon as Eric gets back to normal.
0: I went straight round to the Blackheart in Earl's Court Road and had two quick shorts. There is a natural instinct to assume the best about our friends and a concern about how much you can interfere in their lives before you go a little too far and they shut you out. I feared greatly for Eric, that he was using his music troubles as an excuse to fritter away his time on clubbing, boozing, and chatting up the dollies. He could easily wake up one morning soon and find that he'd blown the Claymore Commission and lost Mandy and I couldn't imagine how he could recover from two such devastating, self-inflicted failures. I walked home that night trying to figure out how I might be able to get through to Eric, to shake him out of this funk without alienating him. I had no idea that it was already far beyond me. Even now, looking back 20 years later, I wonder, weren't the signs all there waiting to be seen? Shouldn't I have known what was really going on? But I didn't see. I didn't know. Or if I did, some part of me must have been unwilling to face it. Eric seemed subdued when I met him two days later. He had a slightly disheveled look about him. His clothes were rumpled and his hair was brushed back in slick clumps that tended to separate and dangle down on the side of his face until he shoved them back again. Eric wanted to go for a pint, but I wouldn't. So we sat in the sun at Holland Park, which only made him look more bedraggled and forlorn. I can't remember much of what we said, but it wasn't of any special importance. I was going to Italy for a few days to do an interview with Luigi Nono. Eric gave me some good questions to ask, which showed that his critical thinking was still in fine form, and that cheered me somewhat. He didn't attempt to explain or apologize for the evening I brought him home from the colony. He didn't refer to it at all, and neither did I. I've never seen any point in rehashing boorish or childish behavior. Since then, of course, I've often wondered about everything we left unsaid. I wish I'd given in a little and gone along to the Britannia or the Blackheart with him for a pint. But I wasn't in the mood. I was trying to discourage him from the beer. And we always want to believe there'll be time for another pint, another day. But when we parted on the high street a short while later, It was the last time I saw Eric Springer alive. I rang them two or three times after I returned from Italy, but no one answered the phone. I meant to go around, but I had a number of assignments to catch up with, and so the days stretched into a week. It was about 11 o'clock one morning when I got the call. At first, the voice was so faint that I almost hung up, thinking no one was there. But then I caught it. Not much more than an exhalation. Help... Eric. Mandy? Is that you? Eric. I'll be right there. I'd never heard a human voice sound so weak and helpless. I think I ran all the way from my flat to their house. I tried the door at once and found it unlocked. I shouted for both of them as I went into the front hallway, but got no response. The front sitting room was empty, and the main music room as well. I hesitated there just long enough to glance at the loose pages of sheet music scattered around the place, hoping that some of it might be Eric's quartet, but it was the Berg score. Plates of half-eaten fast food had been left on the floor and perched on the arms of chairs, looking as dry and hard as wax imitations. I hurried downstairs to the room where Eric worked. It was dark, and there was a damp chill in the air. It reeked of stale tobacco. I turned on a table lamp and saw some ashtrays full of cigarette butts. There were a couple of virtually new pipes on a side table. Eric had never smoked, and I was sure I'd never told him that Peter Warlock did, both cigarettes and a pipe. There were no books, tapes, or records in the room. It was as simple and austere as a monk's cell, a chaise. For one frantic second, I thought I saw Eric stretched out on it, the thin blanket tucked up under his chin, just as they found Peter Warlock. Eric wasn't there but there were more loose sheets of music scattered all over the place. Each page was clean and unmarked, lined with blank stabs that lanced my heart. Just as I got back to the ground floor, I heard a noise from upstairs. I found Mandy in the main bedroom. She was curled up beneath the sheet, barely conscious. Her face was desperately pale, and her hair clung to her face in sweaty snarls. She saw me, but she didn't seem to register who I was. Eric! It's all right, love. It's all right. Eric's not here at the moment. He must have gone out. Eric! No, it's George. I said as I sat on the edge of the bed and stroked her face lightly. You're not well, are you? Have you seen a doctor? Her eyes found me then. George!
1: I can't move.
0: Why? At that moment I noticed Mandy's legs poking out from under the sheet. And I was horrified. Her toes were curled tightly, and her calves appeared to have shriveled. I pulled the sheet up and saw the same slack and wasting flesh all along the lower part of her thighs. I could barely find the words to speak. Mandy, what happened? It was absurd. But thoughts of Berg and his violin concerto suddenly swarmed in my mind. The piece Mandy had been preparing to play in the last week of the proms. I've always thought of it as Berg's farewell to life since it was all about both life and death, and Berg died, his own bizarre, absurd death, within a few months of completing it. But there was another person involved. Manon Gropius, the lovely young daughter of close friends and a special favorite of Berg's. At the age of 18, just before Berg was commissioned to write the concerto, Manon lost her long and heroic battle against the ravages of polio. Berg was deeply moved and dedicated the concerto to her to the memory of an angel. Now, staring at Mandy's legs, I felt a confusion that seemed to boil up out of my bones and surge through me, leaving me dazed and paralyzed. Finally, I heard Mandy's faint voice again.
1: Save Eric.
0: He's not- The kitchen. I seemed to come back into my own body then and I raced down the stairs. I hadn't even thought of checking the kitchen at the rear of the ground floor. It had a gas stove. The door wouldn't budge. I was sure I could smell gas. As I rattled the doorknob uselessly, I noticed something hanging from it. The thin silver chain with the charm that Eric had bought for Mandy at Portobello Road, the Egyptian cat with the amber eye. In a moment of awful certainty, I knew I'd never told Eric the single most revealing detail about Peter Warlock's death, the sign that strongly pointed to suicide rather than an accident. A few minutes before he stretched out on the chaise and tucked the blanket up under his chin, Warlock had taken his cat and put it safely outside the room. It was the cat's frightful wailing and mewing that eventually drew the landlady's attention. I got Mandy out first. While the neighbors looked after her and alerted the police and fire brigade, I went back for Eric. I expected the house to blow up at any moment. I took a chair and smashed the kitchen window, unlocked the outside door, got in, and turned off the gas. I waved a towel around, trying to clear the air. I had to step outside twice to overcome dizziness, but then I was finally able to go to Eric. He was slumped back in a chair, his head pointing north, his feet crossed at the ankles and propped on the edge of the wooden table. He looked for all the world like someone who's just dozed off while waiting for the kettle to boil. But his lips and cheeks were as red as a tanager, and there was about his mouth the slightly bemused smile of the dead. I visited Mandy at St. Mary Abbott's Hospital and saw her again shortly before she left London. She recovered quickly from what the doctors said was probably a psychosomatic illness. She wasn't having any of that, and neither was I. But there seemed no point in trying to argue otherwise with anyone. Mandy and I, sadly, found that we had little to say to each other. It was as if we both wanted or needed to retreat from a terrible experience we had shared unwillingly. I felt more than a little guilty for not paying serious attention to what had been happening to her. So preoccupied was I by Eric's situation. She scratched the proms, of course, and disappeared. I have no idea whether any of the rumors I occasionally heard about her over the years were true. But she never performed in public again. If Eric Springer is remembered at all today by people who never knew him, it is probably not as the promising composer of the plaintive and Weberness variations for piano and oboe, but as the composer of a sweetened-up movie theme based on it. (laughs) Author's Notes his own bizarre, absurd death. Not long after he completed the Great Violin Concerto, Albin Berg, 1885 to 1935, suffered an insect bite on the back. From neglect or mistreatment, it formed an abscess. Berg was so poor at the time that he and his wife attempted to lance it themselves. They used toenail scissors. Berg's condition worsened steadily, and he died soon after he finally entered a hospital. No effort was made to determine the exact cause of his death, but it was most likely due to blood poisoning. To those whom God has forsaken is given a gas fire in Earl's court. Patrick Hamilton, Hangover Square. I came across this line several years after Eric's death, and for obvious reasons, it made a deep impression on me. Hamilton is probably best known as the author of the plays Rope and Gaslight. He hated the movies that were based on them. His novel, Hangover Square, is set in Earl's Court on the eve of World War II. It ends with the hero killing two people and then taking his own life, by gas, after leaving a note asking the police to look after his cat. Oddly enough, when the novel was filmed, this character, who had nothing whatsoever to do with music, was transformed into a homicidal composer. Years earlier, Hamilton had been struck by a car and seriously injured. He recovered, but his face was disfigured. He took to wearing a grotesque artificial nose for a while. This accident contributed enormously to the alcoholism that eventually killed him. It occurred in the narrow side street, directly behind the house in which Eric Springer died, years later. Featuring vocal performances by Ezra Godden and J. Lee Hoyt. Original music by Jordan Peer. This has been a Watertown Arts production.